Welcome to Grace and Peace Church. We are in the middle of a series where we're reading through the book of James and kind of taking it thought by thought and uh, grateful to have you along. And uh, if you're studying with us, all the notes are available on our website if you want to track along with references that we make. Uh, or if you're listening on the podcast or you're watching on YouTube, in the show notes or the description below, you'll get all the links to anything that we reference and the passages that we are in. Um, and if you have questions about who we are as Grace and Peace Church, graceandpeacechurch.org, and uh, you can find all the info, ways to connect. Uh, we have life group during the week. Love to uh, take what we talk about here on uh, the weekend service and dig in deeper, ask questions, begin to um, really see how these passages are lived out and pray for one another, care for one another, and, uh, and journey through uh, this, this walk with Christ in uh, community. So my name is Nate, I'm the lead pastor here and uh, have the honor and the privilege of bringing you the word this week. And so we're gonna be in James, we're gonna be in chapter one, we're in verse 13 through 18. And we've been looking at this letter that James writes to a group of believers to help them in their journey with becoming more like Christ in their, their journey of discipleship. And last week we spoke about this idea of maturity, that James really strives to communicate and to direct these early believers to this maturity. And the reason this maturity was so important is because then uh, in their discipleship, there's a witness, there's something that begins to happen that people will observe, they will see and experience this new and good life with Christ. Because the life with Christ should be good, it should be different, it shouldn't be uh, something that we place our trust into and ends up being something just draining and tiring and not life-giving. And that's why we that's why we gather, that's why we have these teachings, because um, we want to continually center our lives around Jesus that brings new life, that brings a good way of living, the way things are intended to be. And so, James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be the kind of first fruits he created. Let's start with some definitions. The definition or the theological understanding of sin helps us understand this conversation of temptation and why we're wrestling with it, why James is calling uh, these believers and calling us ultimately to, to wrestle with it. The little translation that you see in the Old Testament and it carries through in the New Testament and what Jesus, uh, how Jesus defines it, is this idea of missing the goal. So if you view like a target, if you're looking at archery, uh, missing the target, missing the center of the target is, is what would, would have been called sin. 
And it's so it's missing that ultimate goal of hitting the center, the intentionality of hitting the center of that target with purpose and focus. And and the missing of that mark is defined by relationship. So when we miss the the mark in our relationships with each other and with God, that is sin. And so when brokenness takes place between us and people, um, it's in all throughout scripture, it's connected to God. So when I willfully try and hurt somebody or, or selfishly do something to damage somebody else, um, that then breaks that relationship and ultimately breaks the relationship with God. And that breaks God's heart. Therefore, when we sin against someone else, it's really over sinning against God. And so there's this broken relationship that happens. And we'll, we'll get into why that matters here in a minute. But um, this was intended for the people of God. So when we talk about sin and we talk about brokenness and missing the mark, this isn't meant to be projected on all of population. This is meant to be something that God invites us into willfully, not something that we as Christians project onto other people, uh, that we project onto leadership in our world, that we project onto companies, anything else. It's solely meant to be a way of life that we willfully abide by because we've been fully sold out to the fact that God has the ultimate way of living. And so just wanted to clarify that because a lot of times the Christian community can get labeled for projecting these truths and these ways of living onto other people that haven't sold out to this way of living. So uh, again, so this definition of sin is this like willful breaking of relationship between us and God. And that's why Jesus echoes it again where he says, you know, what's the greatest commandment? It's love God and love others as yourself. Like everything you see in the Ten Commandments, um, all those rules that you see in the Old Testament, um, and that those are all meant to be summed up in one thing, relationship between us and others and us and God. So why is sin important? Uh, why is this understanding of sin important? Um, because I believe that when these relationships are broken, there's damage that takes place in our world. And sometimes we're aware of it and sometimes we're not. Uh, I was reminded recently uh, as I was having a conversation, uh, it was actually a little while back, um, with one of my daughters and she pointed out that uh, a family we were hanging out with, one of their kids said a really bad word and, and like lashed out in anger. And she began to ask, um, do you think that was because they've learned that from their parents? And um, any of you that are listening, any of you that are listening, it's not you, trust me. Um, I'm in the same boat because it is interesting to listen to that conversation and go, man, what are the things that I'm doing that maybe my kids are learning that other kids then hear and go, wow, do you think they learned that from Pastor Nate? You know, like we're all in this journey of learning and discovering what it means to be more and more like Christ. But as I saw that conversation unfold, I began to be reminded that our actions aren't just isolated to us. What I do and how I treat my children then affects them and then their friends and then other families. And so um, I just share that as an example because I think sometimes we think that sin and what we do doesn't affect others. 
um, but ultimately it does, and it, and it really begins to have this ripple effect. And so that's a small example, but begin to think through um, larger actions, maybe more, uh, not worse, but I would say more impactful, um, or should I say serious injustices that take place when we talk about racism, when we talk about violence, um, abuse, those things then really have this effect, this ripple effect, right? And maybe you've been in some way the receipt on the receiving end of abuse or violence or injustice or um, racism in some way. And that has then shaped you. So a person's actions, a person's sin, then has shaped another person's, which then impacts how you treat other people and how you perceive the world and how you treat others. So then it, then it has this ripple effect that takes place and it, it, can, it can really begin to really transform generations in really negative ways. And so let's look at the positive side of it and begin to look at uh, what can happen um, when we begin to surrender life to Christ. And so we're going to check out uh, verse 15. So verse 15 says, Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, which now we have a bit of a working definition, this idea of broken relationship. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And so when we talk about sin, and we talk about it in a way where it's got this churchy vibe to it, sin ultimately has this impact that he says will cause death. And so when he says death, it's not just in terms of like a physical death, although that does uh, end up being a consequence a lot of times of sin. Um, but there can be this slow decay, this slow death, this slow fade that begins to happen as a result of sin in our lives or as a result of sin in other people's lives. And so this decay would be the opposite of experiencing life. So he makes this very clear distinction that sin leads to this death versus centering around Jesus, centering around the truth, which we're going to see here in a second, begins to bring life, transformation, a good way of living, right? The way things were intended to be. And so then that's how we begin to see uh, this, this, uh, this conversation about sin take root and be a reality and be something that we we really deeply need to be concerned about because it does slowly begin to erode not only our soul but our lives physically we experience the weight of sin um, emotionally right there's so many things tied into this this isn't just a spiritual thing that we talk about at church this is a physical thing that we deal with daily and very uh, very tangible ways and so why is our understanding uh, of temptation important? Which he, is what he starts out with is like, nobody should ever say that God is tempting us. God isn't about that. Um, but our desire leans towards temptation and uh, we begin to experience it. It's due to our selfish desire um, that exists in everyday life. Um, but the invitation that Jesus brings is to resist that in order to, going back to the opposite of death, live, to thrive, to experience life to the full. So we have a choice to either flee from these temptations, to flee from these desires that ultimately lead to sin, as he says, um, or we can you know, crumble under the pressure, which 
a great story that if you're not familiar with, you want to go back to the very beginning of your Bible in Genesis, we begin to see in Genesis chapter 3, this played out of what it looks like. This is the very beginning of how uh, how we were given this freedom and in the creation process, this freedom to follow God or to follow our own selfish desire, which leads to sin. And in the creation process, you see in the Garden of Eden, this relationship in this creation poem, we see that the creation that God made, all of what we experience, see plants, animals, and human beings were in right relationship. And the human beings were in right relationship. It says walking together with God. And so there was this beautiful way that things were intended and then this story takes place that you might be familiar with, or maybe if you're, you're new to, um, to Scripture. Uh, I hope this begins to shed some light on sin and, and how this whole thing happens in our daily lives, because this is thousands of years later, still very applicable. So in Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord, had, Lord God had made. He said to the woman, God... Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did he really really claim that? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. It's one tree that's off limits. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired, there's that word desire, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So in Genesis chapter 3, we see this moment of fall where evil steps in and tempts Eve to begin to say, are you sure that's what God said? And as we see, as we observe this, this passage, we see there starts to be a distorting of God's word right from the beginning. Things were good. God said one thing, I just don't want you to touch this tree, but everything else is yours. And so instantly, the very first thing that, um, that evil does is begin to question, did God really say that? Is that really what he's about? And is that truth? And so the distorting or twisting the truth will be a desire of ours. That's one of the warnings that we need to heed as we live out our faith we need to recognize that there's going to be moments where we're, our desire is going to want to push back and, um, and, and basically twist the truth. Eve saw the negative instead of all of the positive. All the creation was at their, their disposal, at their hands, basically. And everything was in a right relationship, the relationship with each other. Adam and Eve, and then also the relationship with God was good. It was the way things were intended to be. But the one thing that she focused on was what you can't have. 
And there's something interesting about that in our own lives that sometimes we focus on what we can't have rather than focusing all the great things, that, all the blessings that God's given us. And the second thing I would say is you see in this interaction between evil and Eve is a temptation to deny the consequences that are inevitable. It's just a little lie. Ever said that before? Or this won't hurt anybody else. It's just my thing that I do and I'm willing to deal with the consequences. There are little half-truths, little lies that we buy into thinking that it will be okay. Eve did the same thing, just saying, you know, basically being tempted by, by Satan, by evil, to go, is it really that big of a deal? It's probably not going to hurt you. It's not that bad. And would God really want you to not do that? Um, I think there becomes this inner dialogue in our lives that plays out just like this still today on a daily basis. Justification of whatever it is, that it's not a big deal. Justify it away and just be like, nah, it's, this won't affect anybody. Or it's really not that bad. Like, I don't think it's really going to... It's going to hurt anybody if, I, if I'm screaming and yelling or whatever, you know, like, um, or the way that I take care of my body or the things that I do and the things that I engage in, um, it's my business and it's really nobody else's. It's not going to affect anybody else. But ultimately, there's a ripple effect. It may not be a consequence that's immediate, but it may rear its head in a way in other areas, in other times, in other parts of your day, in other conversations, in other ways that you think in your heart towards others, that it will begin to surface, that it will bubble up and will begin to take root and have an impact and many times a negative impact. And I believe that we're constantly plagued by this desire that takes place. Maybe you've seen the show, Let's Make a Deal. And in that show, you begin to see the temptation play out, right? So many times you'll see somebody who's given an option of a envelope with $500 or $1,000 or open door number one or door number two, right? And the audience is screaming and yelling, go for number one, go for number one, go for number two, you know? And there's this temptation from others a lot of times in our lives to really to push us and say, go for the bigger, better thing, right? We always want the bigger, better deal. And what we have in our hands often is seen as insignificant, invaluable, not enough, and we get greedy and we want more. There's something about the unknown that will entice us, that will pull us in and continually draw us to want more. I think it's where the uh, the basis for addiction begins to come. Uh, gambling is that same thing. It's like, well, if I just try one more, maybe I'll get all my money back. And then if I do one more, then I'll, I'll make even more. Like, I'm pretty sure I've like put in enough time and I will get there. It's an addiction. It's a constant desire. And it's built into who we are because I believe that what our desire, our true desire is when we begin to experience the true life in Christ, that that truly fulfills. But in Let's Make a Deal, you begin to see that lived out, this idea that God offers us a deal. It's a very good deal. It's more than we had prior to even starting this relationship. 
And yet we still, we want more. And oftentimes we end up with a zonk, right? So if you watch the show, there's a zonk. If you open the wrong door and it ends up being, I don't know, a sheep or a cow or something that's, you know, basically to most people that are watching it invaluable. God offers us this life, this life to the full, but we're so enticed by something that's potentially better. We always want to begin to see what's behind door number two. Evil outcome is rooted in evil desire. Luke 6, 45, Jesus says, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. As we go further on in James, we begin to dig further into this idea of speech and language and what that looks like and how it begins to be a reflection of our heart. And Jesus understood that when the heart is pure, there begins to be a ripple effect. There comes uh, out of your mouth, out of your speech, out of your actions, there becomes a way that is good, that is true, that is so opposite of death, that is meant to be life-giving. In verse 18 here in James, we see this beautiful reminder of God's heart for us. Because again, James, what he does over and over is bring a, a concern, something that we need to be aware of, and then brings a reminder and a truth pretty quickly. And that's what I love about this letter. And so in the New Living Translation, it helps us understand it a little clearer uh, and gives a little more depth to this, this passage. And it says, again, this is James 1.18, He chose to give birth to us by giving us His true word. And we, out of all creation, become his prized possession. Be reminded that you are his prized possession. Be reminded that today, when you have the choices between sin, evil, destruction, broken relationship, missing the mark, versus what is true in God's word, the promises of bringing new life, bringing words of encouragement, love, bringing joy to the world that we live in, that that begins to transform not only our lives, but the community that we live in. And so that's God's heart for us. And he wants to begin to reshape our hearts, reshape how we view sin, how we view the world that we live in, and view the relationship that we have between us and God. And ultimately, that's inextricably tied to the relationship with others. That when I treat somebody kindly with grace, with patience, with self-control, there is something life-giving, something holy, something pure, something good about that. And Jesus talks about how tied those things are. Though when you do something kind for someone in need, you're doing it ultimately for God, for Jesus. And so let's look at some action steps. There is a way. So when we talk about being tempted, when we talk about facing these trials, when we talk about facing uh, the, the potential of doing evil, um, in 1 Corinthians 10, it says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. 
And this goes back to this idea of maturity, that as we mature in Christ and begin to see the fruit of living this life in him, we will be able to handle these temptations. He's not saying they won't go away. Evil will be crouching at your door constantly. There will constantly be options. There will constantly be a choice between the low road and the high road. Choice between what is death and what brings life. And what I would encourage us to do is to listen to the Holy Spirit that will set you free. The Holy Spirit, as we begin to step in and listen and have times throughout our day where we're constantly in tune with what God desires, we will begin to be set free. I have a few friends of mine that recently started reading scripture on a consistent basis. And in conversation with them, I I began to see that having the consistent daily time of being in God's word it began to shape, not in drastic, really obvious, like, man, I just started reading my Bible and life is transformed, but in subtle ways where in conversation with people, in how they react to certain scenarios, that they recognize that there, there started to be this, this foundation, this undergirding, this something that was happening beneath the surface that began to shift their perspective and shift how they reacted and shift how they spoke. And so it encourages listen to the Holy Spirit. And a lot of times that comes through reading God's word, through prayer. Um, I want to, I just invite you to, to do the prayer of confession. On Sundays, we take time to read this prayer and I'm going to put it up here on the screen uh, for you to, to read through. I would say just hit pause and, or if you need to Uh, Look it up in the show notes if you're listening on the podcast, but it's a prayer that we read when we gather together uh, as a reminder for where we are. So I'm just going to read it over us. Eternal God, in whom we live and move and have our being, your face is hidden from us by our sins, and we forget your mercy in the blindness of our hearts. Cleanse us from all our offenses and deliver us from proud thoughts and vain desires. With humility and meekness, may we draw near to you, confessing our faults, confiding in your grace, and finding in you our refuge and strength. Through Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. I would encourage you to maybe daily read that prayer. Uh, It's a heart posture that begins to transform how we view ourselves and we recognize there's brokenness, but then move forward in the strength of Christ. There's something powerful in that humility that as we begin to surrender our lives to Christ, it begins to transform us. And the last thing I would say is Psalm 139. If you want to read that entire Psalm, but the portion that I would say focus on and continually have uh, in your prayers is this search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Again, that posture begins to transform life because we begin to recognize the difference between what brings death and what brings life. If you're hungry for more, I would encourage you to look up the prayer of examine. Just Google it. You can look it up. It's by St. Ignatius. 
and uh, it just is a beautiful way of articulating and giving a guide to a daily process of surrendering to Christ and and finding life in Christ. So not just looking at the negative, but looking at the positive and looking at what God is doing. So grace and peace to you as you live into these truths. And uh, again, if you have any questions, reach out to us. If you'd like to connect with us on uh, the weekend gatherings, we meet um, on the lawn and uh, just check out our website. You can get updates weekly on what's happening and how to connect. Grace and peace to you. Rejoice in knowing that we never walk alone. Know the grace and peace of Christ walking beside us, guiding and protecting us. Share this comfort with one another and feel his presence each moment of each day. Amen.